The reading is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, to chapter 6, verse 9. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but, like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Our masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favouritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll go lead us in a prayer, and then we'll have a closer look at this passage. Paul says this in chapter 4, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so, our Heavenly Father, as we look at how this calling uh, should affect our lives today, that you would give us the joy and the encouragement of living, of walking according to that calling For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I expect that this passage this morning raises all sorts of questions, perhaps more than any other part of Ephesians, and perhaps even across the whole of the Bible. We might ask, why is Paul giving outdated views like this? Why is he telling wives to submit to their husbands? How can he say, as he does in verse 25, that the husband is the head of the wife? And why is he speaking about slaves and masters without a sense of criticism at the institution? 
Or perhaps our questions aren't so sharp this morning, but we just might be a bit confused about how this fits in. After all, Ephesians has given us a grand vision of the church, hasn't it? That the church is at the center of God's purposes for the cosmos. And here Paul seems to be talking about trivial things, like whether a child does what their parents tell them. But I want us to see this morning that this is neither outdated advice, nor some trivial instruction, but rather this is right at the heart of God's plan for humanity. Now, I know this is a new sermon this morning, but it's not actually a new section. It actually comes right off the back of what we were looking at last week, but I just didn't want to give Philip too much to do. Uh, Have a look back at um, chapter 5, verse 18. It's on page 26. See, at the end of that passage, we saw this instruction, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, that that command is often quite confusing, isn't it? Because when we're told to be filled with the Spirit, we might imagine someone who's always happy, who always got a smile, who never disagrees with anyone. But when he's talking about being filled there, he's talking in the plural to the whole church. He's saying be filled as a church. And to be filled uh, in Ephesians, as I'm going to get us to look at in a moment, is to be a new humanity to reflect God as a new community. Uh, Let's do a little bit of work on that. I'm sorry to sort of get straight in there right at the beginning, but hopefully you're uh, awake enough uh, to to follow along. I want us to just uh, do a little bit of, uh, of an overview of where we've been in Ephesians, and I want us to see how this being filled fits in with what we look at this morning. There are two things to see about being filled. First of all, we are already filled. Uh, Have a look at chapter 1, verse 23. See, there Paul talks about Christ being raised from the dead, and he says this, the church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so the church is not just some institution or social club, it is Christ's body, and because it's Christ's body, it is connected to him. The moment we become a Christian, we're filled. We, we have everything we ever need. Forgiveness, a new relationship, every spiritual blessing to look forward to. We have that the moment we become in Christ. But the second thing to see in Ephesians is that we are also being filled. And so look at Paul's prayer in chapter 3, verse 19. Uh, look at what he prays for the church. He prays that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, what does that mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, remember what we saw a couple of weeks ago uh, in chapter 4, verse 24. I'm sorry for all the page turning, but hopefully you're still with us. Chapter 4, verse 24. Put on the new self, he says, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So you remember I swapped my jackets over to show us that right at the heart of God's plan for this new humanity, for the church, is to make us a new human. Or rather, to, to, he quotes there from Genesis chapter 1 to show us that actually what we're becoming is what he designed us for. Now, if that was all too much, um, 
come back in here, because the big point is that God now is wanting us to reflect the fullness we already have in Christ. Uh, Let me give you an example of this. This might be a little bit trivial, but this just kind of helps me process how these things work. I I don't know if you've ever come across these pocket warmers. Um, Maybe it's just me, but I find these absolutely fascinating. Um, They're designed to warm your hands on a cold day, and uh, what they have inside them is a little disc that you crack, and then it sparks. And when it sparks, it sets off a chain reaction in the chemical, uh, and you can just see it in this picture here, that the material changes before your eyes and becomes lovely and warm. Now, my purpose this morning is not to sell these products, but rather to show us there's a similar dynamic here. The moment we become a Christian, the spark happens. We have access to Christ. We have all his fullness. But God now is in the business of gradually transforming us, putting on the new self so that we reflect that fullness. And so coming back to chapter 5, when we read about wives and husbands, parents and children, this is what fullness looks like, Paul says. Here is the vision of this new humanity. A lot of us are talking about visions for Britain, aren't we, at the moment? What's the world going to be like after the pandemic, uh, after Brexit? I, I guess when it comes to election time, people give us a manifesto. Well, it, it's like that here. Paul is saying, look, this is what this new humanity looks like. This is what the full human life looks like. And what do we see? Well, firstly, fullness is found in the ordinary, uh, sorry, in Christ. Secondly, fullness is found in submission and love. And fullness is found in the ordinary. See, first of all, fullness is found in Christ. See, notice what governs these relationships. How should married partners relate to one another? How should children treat their parents? Well, for Paul, there's one clear guide. Uh, come back to chapter 5 with me uh, on page 26. He, and look at what he says, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your, uh, yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church. Verse 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Uh, fathers, verse 4, do not exacerbate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I could go on, but the, you get the point, don't you? That Jesus is the beating heart of all these relationships. Every part of our lives is to reflect him. But it's not just that Jesus kind of affects these relationships in an abstract way. It's rather what we know about Jesus already in Ephesians that shapes these relationships. Just turn back a couple of pages. I'm, I'm very sorry. This is the last bit of page flicking, I think, for a while. But look at what he says about Christ in chapter 1, verse 22. He says this, God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So Jesus, we see, is not sitting dormant, twiddling his thumbs, if I can put it that way, waiting for his return. Rather, he is now enthroned in heaven, governing his church, which is his body, 
caring for it, sanctifying it, keeping it uh, to the last day. And that Paul's point is that cosmic reality should trickle down into all our dealings with one another, parents and children, wives and husbands, employees and employers. And so you see that just played out, don't you? Um, Slaves uh, 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 to um, serve their masters as they serve Jesus. Uh, But masters aren't just to kind of treat them badly, uh, they're to treat them well because they know that Jesus is in heaven. Now, it's worth just saying at this point, and uh, just take a little uh, sidetrack for a second, that when Paul talks about slaves and masters here, he's not talking about what we often imagine, the terrible African slave trade where people were essentially kidnapped and forced into slavery. He's speaking about slavery in the ancient world, which, uh, while never condoned by the New Testament, was just a reality of the ancient economy. And in fact, slavery wasn't attached to race in uh, the same way it has more recently. Uh, Slaves could uh, be lots of different people. They could uh, buy their freedom. They could own slaves. They could uh, be quite senior. They could move jobs. It is just a way that the employment market works and uh, isn't a million miles off the employee, uh, employer uh, in relationship that we see today. But coming back in, notice what he says. He doesn't say, you know, treat your boss rightly because the workplace will be much happier. Or bosses, treat your staff better uh, because they will uh, work harder for you. Rather, he says, because Christ is in heaven. See, because of Christ is in heaven, he says, work as if you're working for him because he sees, he rewards, he gives And bosses, don't just treat your staff badly because you know that you've got an ultimate boss in the heavens. Now, this really helps us to see Paul's motivation here when we come to husbands and wives because it's very easy, isn't it, to read this, and perhaps we have this morning, and think, well, here's some outdated ideas. Here's some uh, outdated ideas about women being in the home and husbands uh, ruling the house. But Paul never, ever suggests that. There's no hint here of inferiority. In fact, as you look through the New Testament, you realize that some of Paul's most significant co-workers were women. But the point is, as husbands lead, as wives submit, they're reflecting Christ and the church. See, the church submits to Christ's loving rule. And Christ lovingly governs his body, the church, day by day. And Paul says that is to be reflected in the marriage relationship. It's worth just saying that in the ancient world, there was often guidance like this, guidance to households, how to manage your household well, but it would never, ever address the wife or a slave or a child but actually, Paul does, doesn't he? And in some ways, he's very countercultural and in some ways very progressive because he addresses the wives directly as capable moral agents. He even addresses the children, recognizing that they're fully fledged members of the church community. And he addresses slaves, the underclass, which no one would ever dream of treating with this sort of dignity. And so, actually, Paul here is recognizing 
the great significance and the worth of each of these people. But he's saying that these relationships mirror Christ and the church. It's worth just saying, isn't it, that the gospel doesn't just affect us on a Sunday. It doesn't just transform us in these four walls. It's easy, isn't it, to, I think, have a dividing wall in our lives and think that the gospel deals with my spiritual bit. It gets me forgiveness of sins. It uh, gets me into heaven. And then I just carry on with the rest of my life like almost everyone around me. Now, of course, the gospel wonderfully and gloriously forgives us completely in Christ. But Paul never sees a dividing wall. Those, that gospel then tr- transforms at the way I conduct myself in the rest of my life. I just find my notes, yeah, where I am. <laughs> Trouble is, when you scribble all over them, you don't quite know where you are. There we are, yes. So, Paul's point here is, um, yeah, that reality transforms not just the Sunday, but the Monday to Saturday. And it's not just, say, around the communion table that we're transformed by the gospel, but around the dining table. And it's not just in these four walls that actually we live out at what Christ has done but it's outside in the world, in our offices, in our building sites, in our workplaces. I remember seeing this very vividly myself when I moved to London to begin work, and um, I started going to a new church, and a couple in the church um, uh, just uh, got to know me and invited me to their house and things like that. I remember uh, the uh, wife was just turning 30, and I thought to myself, 30? That's so old. Couldn't believe it. They were so growing up. And now I'm way past that. But I noticed something very significant when we walked from church into their home. I noticed no difference. Uh, The way they spoke about God at church was the way they spoke about God in home. And the way they treated one another at church was the way they treated one another in their home. And the very fact I saw no difference was such a great example to me, and I'm so thankful for it, of seeing that the gospel permeates every aspect of our lives. Now, of course, the big question is how do we do that? What does this look like in these relationships? And that's what Paul goes on as we see that fullness is demonstrated in submission and love See, if you hear this idea that God is creating a new humanity where people have the opportunity to become what he has made them, I I wonder what you imagine. Perhaps you imagine a group of supermen and superwomen who uh, ooze confidence, who let nothing get on top of them. Or perhaps you imagine a church of super saints who never do any wrong and are always smiling at one another. Or perhaps you imagine a super family where the children are smartly dressed, on time, always seen, not heard, except to say please and thank you. But what's Paul's vision of this new humanity? What's this society look like? Well, the headline comes in chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What's the model? It's submit Now, verse 21, it's worth saying, doesn't mean that everyone submits to everyone else like a sort of submission merry-go-round. 
Uh, You may have heard the joke, what's the slowest thing on four legs? It's two Christians trying to go through the same door. And that's what we might imagine here in verse 21, that no one quite takes the lead and everyone's submitting to one another. But Paul clearly shows us, doesn't he, that some lead, some submit. But that said, neither can verse 21 just be dismissed out of hand if we find ourselves in a responsibility to lead. See, while husbands are never told to submit to their wives, they're told rather, in verse 25, to love them. And how are they to love them? Well, look at what he says in verse 25, just as Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church? Well, he gave himself up for her. And so the idea of the husband leading here is a million miles off tyranny and authoritarianism. And I hate to say it, even there's no hint here of abuse. Rather, it is of the husband giving himself up in self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial leading. And John Stock points out very helpfully that as you see what the definition here of love is, you realize whilst it's not the same as submission, it is coming from the same sort of territory. See, what's the new hallmark of this new humanity? What is laying aside my self-interest for the sake of another? Wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving their wives, children obeying their parents, parents bringing them up in the Lord, employees working hard for their employers, employers treating their staff well. Now, I'm guessing that probably isn't the first thing that jumps to our minds if we're thinking of the successful human being. Uh, A couple of years ago, I checked out my old school's website uh, just uh, out of interest, and I noticed on there they had a kind of hall of fame, a success story page of all the people that have gone on to very successful things. Um, I just point out that I'm definitely not on there. Um, But um, I think the only significant person was Chris Smallin, who um, became a sort of um, reasonably good footballer. Uh, But uh, apart from that, I don't think there was anyone else we would know. Uh, But um, the, the point is, there was no one on there, we're told, that laid down their life for another. In fact, it was very notable that there were no mums on there who perhaps have given up a career to bring up their children or an employee who took a a difficult job and honoured their boss. Because that's not how we judge success. And in fact, we think that success comes through, in fact, not laying down our lives, not submitting to what other people think of us, going our own way. Um, Take, for example, this song by Paloma Faith, rather. Um, It it came out a couple of years ago, I think. It got very catchy. It was on some sort of advert. Uh, But she sings this song, Make Your Own Kind of Music. And this is the chorus, but you've got to make your own kind of music. Sing your own special song. Make your own kind of music, even if nobody else sings along. Now, there's a little bit of irony there, because she's telling us to make our own type of music while singing a cover track. But if we look past that, we see, I think quite helpfully, that this is the spirit of our age, isn't it? Make your own sort of music. The way to be fulfilled, the way to reach my potential is not caring about others and what they think, but charting my own course. 
Now, of course, there's something in that, in that we want all people to flourish uh, as God has made them. He doesn't make us as robots or the Borg. But actually, this is the spirit, isn't it, of our culture. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to plot my own course. And there's a sad irony right at the center of our culture where we we want the community that looks out for one another. Uh, Remember back to lockdown and March, uh, how people hoped that this would be a new start for us, where people look out for their neighbors, where they care for the vulnerable. But we know, on the other hand, that we're told to go it alone, to uh, reach our own potential, to not listen to people. And we wonder why those two don't mash why we can't get the society we all long for. But the church sings a different type of music. The church has Christ and him crucified as its tune. The beating heart of our community is that Christ laid his life down for us. And that permeates everything, doesn't it? As a wife submits to her husband and his leadership. As a husband puts aside his desire for a rest and slouching on the sofa to to, to lay down his self-interest and serve uh, his wife uh, and what she needs. So you see, don't you, uh, how this new community is to submit, to love, to give themselves up. And just imagine what sort of community uh, this is. Imagine the sort of employee who doesn't work just when the boss's eye is on them. I remember when I was back at work, um, I, I got a new manager who started at 10 a.m. and worked very late. And it was amazing. Our whole team's uh, work practices shifted. Everyone started late and everyone worked late. And that's what people do, don't they? When the boss's eye is on them, they work harder. But here is a motivation to work for Christ. Even if we're in a difficult job, even if we've got a difficult boss, we know we've got a good uh, leader in the heavens. And imagine the sort of boss who cares for uh, her employees. Imagine the sort of boss who doesn't lord her authority over them, but treats them with uh, respect. And imagine the sort of husband who doesn't sort of pass off his responsibilities, who takes a lead with the kids or with the kitchen, who doesn't think, well, it's my downtime now, I'm going to indulge myself, but thinks uh, to ask his wife, is there anything I can do? And imagine a wife who's not complaining about her husband and all the things he gets wrong, but is supporting and honoring his leadership, praising him for where he desires to do good for her. See, it's submission. It's love. It's putting aside my self-interest, which marks out this new humanity, which forms the basis for the church. Now, the question is, I guess, why would we ever want to do this? Okay, Christ is our model, but why would we want to follow? It's so difficult, isn't it? I'd, I'd say all these things, but I know I'm not this sort of husband, and I know I'm not this sort of parent. So how is it I can be motivated to be any different? Well, third and finally, Paul here, I want to see, is, um, is, is showing that this fullness is found in the very ordinary things of life, but has a dramatic impact. Right, remember Paul's writing here, isn't he, to a church 
that he wants to have an impact on its culture. Just think of what sort of person Paul is. His whole desire, isn't it, is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And here Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus with the intention of not keeping it to themselves, but to sharing that news further afield. But ask yourself, where does Paul focus his attention here? You might imagine him saying, well, you need to do some evangelism courses. You need to be trained up in how to explain the gospel clearly. Or you need to be sending some missionaries. You need to be raising some cash. And you need to be plotting where you're going to plant churches. But where's Paul's focus? Well, it's on the home, isn't it? It's on the workplace. It's in the very ordinary, if I can put it that way, of life. And actually, that shouldn't surprise us if we know what the significance of the church is. Uh, just, um, I did say it was the last bit of page turning, but I forgot there was a bit more. Uh, just look back to chapter 1 and verse 10, where we saw God's blueprint for the cosmos. Here's his big plan. His plan is to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment. What is the plan? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. See, there's God's big plan. He's bringing everything together. It's the word of bringing to conclusion, like the conclusion at the end of an essay. God is bringing everything to conclusion in Christ. And in chapter 2, verse 15, we see how God does that uh, with the Jew and the Gentile, the, the bitterest of enemies. Halfway through verse 15, he says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And so it's the gospel, the fact that we are forgiven freely in Christ, that we have no boast in our background or our merits or even our race, in this case, uh, with the Jewish and the Gentile people. It's that gospel that means we can lay aside our differences and become one new humanity but it's not that we just become some sort of monastery and keep that to ourselves. Uh, Have a look at chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul, uh, remember we saw that Paul um, speaks about what the church is to do. 3, verse 10, his intent is that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And so you remember Mike um, talked about the church as God's trophy cabinet, It's the place where he shows off what the gospel does, not only to the earth, but to the rulers in the heavenly places as well. See, when you see that what God is doing in the church, actually it's no surprise, is it, that Paul's focus is on that and how people conduct themselves. He doesn't just say husband and wife's, Uh, work like this, or children's and parents uh, should work like that because life will be better. But he knows that this is the way we show what God has done in the cosmos. It's interesting when you look at um, the way Paul motivates us here. Um, Have a look at verse 28, because it's not quite as you would expect At verse 28, he says, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body. 
I guess it's a pretty simple sort of uh, motivation, isn't it? He says, husbands and wives are basically one body. And so if you're the sort of husband who shaves, who washes, who feeds yourself, well, it makes sense to love your wives in the same way. And then he quotes from uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2 and the first marriage in verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And you think to yourself, well, that's very simple, isn't it? Uh, Adam and Eve, they became one flesh, and here Paul's making the point that husband and wife are one flesh. But actually, as you look more closely, you realize that's not quite how Paul's using that verse. See, look at verse 20, 32, where he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, Paul's point here is that actually Genesis 2 is not primarily about Adam and Eve's marriage or any human marriage. It is about Christ and his joining to the church. It's not that God kind of looked through the world and thought to himself, I need an illustration for just how much Christ loved the church. Okay, I'll take the institution of marriage and uh, say that's the example. Actually, he's saying that marriages reflect that greater communion between Christ and the church. See, right from the beginning, right from Genesis, the answer to Adam's loneliness was not Eve. The answer to Adam's loneliness and fullness was being connected to his God. And that gospel was right there in the beginning and anticipated as God says, man would leave his parents and join with his wife. See, actually, human marriage points to a greater marriage between Christ and his church. That is at the center of things. And it's worth just saying that, that if we um, have, uh, those of us who are not married, or those of us who find ourselves in difficult marriages, Actually, these verses are an encouragement to us. I know it can be very difficult, can't it, if we're divorced or separated or same-sex attracted or widowed. These verses can be a difficult read. And I know it can be difficult, can't it, to to think about marriage, perhaps to go to a wedding and, and not daydream about what could have been. But actually, when we see this, we see that any marriage is appointed to the marriage we already have in Christ. See, as we read these verses, they're not just about the married couple who sit next to us in church. They're about you. They're about your relationship uh, with Christ. And so when he says uh, in verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or other blemish. He's speaking about every single believer. See, next time you're at a wedding, and it's probably not that easy, think to yourself that as the bride comes down the aisle looking uh, splendid as she does, that actually that is a picture of what Christ has done for you in his death and resurrection. See, Paul's point here with all of this is to give us a vision not just to make our lives work a bit better 
I mean, I think life does work a bit better if people submit, if people love. But that's not Paul's primary point here. The point is that this is the way we show the gospel to the world. See, the wisdom of God in reconciling the fiercest of enemies, of giving people the motivation to forgive one another, is found not just in the church, but in our marriages, in our parenting, uh, in our work. Um, I um, I quite like uh, watching history programs and reading a bit of history, and I I came across something uh, a while ago which absolutely fascinated me about the fall of the Soviet Empire. And um, this uh, program I was watching argued that the fall of the Soviet Empire didn't come through political might or sort of military strength, but actually came through something much more humble. It came through Levi's 501s. Yes, you heard me right. Levi's jeans, 501s. It was as the younger generations growing up in uh, the USSR saw these jeans that they um, were attracted to them. In fact, there was a whole black market on jeans and uh, the, uh, uh, the USSR tried to make their own version of jeans, but they were rubbish. And um, people would save up even like a month's wages to buy these jeans on the black market. And of course, it wasn't the jeans themselves. They weren't just super comfy trousers that attracted them. It was the lifestyle that went along with it. See, as these young guys growing up saw these jeans, they saw the Western lifestyle behind it. The dream of owning their jeans was uh, because they were attracted to being in a different world and a different way of doing things. And it's amazing, isn't it, that actually just something as simple as the gene can bring down one of the world's biggest empires we've ever seen. And I'm utterly convinced that it's as husband and wife live out these principles in their home life, as a children and parents live differently as workplaces are transformed by these principles. That is the way God's wisdom is shown to the world. That is how we transform the people around us. Uh, Going back to that really old couple I knew in London, uh, I remember I was single at the time, and um, I was really grateful because they just invited me into their home. There wasn't a big problem with me coming. Uh, they always had an open door, and um, it was just the sort of place you could hang out. And I remember seeing the way the husband would talk to his wife, and the wife would talk to his husband, uh, but kind of supporting uh, his uh, leadership in the home. And I remember the way the husband would muck in with the baby, changing the nappies, helping in the kitchen, laying the table. And I remember the way the wife was just overjoyed at her husband's uh, love for her. And I remember just sitting there as a single sort of 22-year-old or whatever, just thinking to myself, do you know what? I really want this. See, it wasn't through persuasive words. It wasn't through them telling me how good the gospel was. It was through them showing me in this community. Now, of course, of course, we do want to explain the gospel And of course, we want to get better at persuading people in our culture of the gospel. There's absolutely a place for that. But I'm utterly convinced that the big, if we're going to have an impact on our culture in this next century, it's probably not going to come through the big Billy Grahams or the new Luthers. It is going to come through ordinary Christians 
living ordinary lives, if I can put it that way, but utterly transformed by the gospel. You can imagine, can't you, getting to know uh, a married couple and just seeing the way husband and wife relate to one another and, and then thinking, what drives that? Or you can imagine a teenager in the youth group getting to know a Christian teenager and them seeing the way they talk about their parents, not in the way that everyone else does, but with honor and respect, and then thinking to themselves, well, what drives this? See, as people see this new vision of a new humanity lived out, that is the way God brings his wisdom to the world and indeed to the whole cosmos. Now, I realize this morning I've not got into specifics. Maybe you've got lots of questions like, well, what if my husband's not very good at leading? Or uh, what if I'm uh, married to a, a non-Christian? Or what if, uh, um, yeah, my children aren't very well behaved? I guess we've got all those sorts of questions, and there's a place for those. But I wanted to give us a helicopter view this morning, because I think that's what Paul does. He doesn't get into all the uh, minutiae of how this all works, but rather shows us how this vision of these relationships shapes, is shaped by the gospel. Uh, in a moment, we're going to hear from Leanne, and I'm hoping she's going to do a little bit of the kind of how this looks in the day today. But I want us to think to ourselves, how does the gospel shape my home life? Have I got a dividing wall between church and what happens in the home? And uh, I know lots of us don't. I see very good examples of this. Uh, but how does this how, how might my relationships better shape, uh, be shaped by the gospel? I guess for some of us, it'd be pretty bruising. It's been pretty bruising for me this week as I've thought, am I this sort of husband? But of course, these verses are here not to condemn us, but to encourage us. See, of course we fail, but we know we have a Savior who has washed us, who has made us clean, who presents us without spot or blemish. But having had a Savior who has done that with us, we, of course, want to be inspired to live in a way that honors and shows him. So let's pray as we finish. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Our how we praise you, our Heavenly Father, that Christ has connected himself to his church that right from the beginning of time, that was your hope and desire for all people. And so we pray, Father, that you would move us by your Spirit, that we may be filled to all the fullness of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.